Hello, David Oakes here and welcome to Trees A Crowd. We're looking at one of the smallest of our 56-ish trees this week, right on the line, in fact, for the maximum height needed to make it onto my list of 56-ish trees. But it is a stunner and sitting on a whole host of secrets. So before I say 56-ish trees yet again, too late, it takes me great pleasure to introduce to you all Tree 49. Dogwood, Cornus Sanguinea. Uprooting the secrets and stories beneath the 56-ish native trees of the British Isles. Our dogwood is our only native member of the Cornus family. Globally speaking, a very large family that is particularly prevalent in North America, where it has accreted a much greater mythology than it has here. There, the Cherokee Indians believe in a brownie-like dogwood people, who rather than causing mischief, roam the mountainsides and perform brownie-sized acts of kindness towards children and towards old people. But here, devoid of minuscule mythic do-gooders, our dogwood can be found growing wild in hedgerows, on the outskirts of forests, coping well with damp soils, and can, under the right conditions, reach about, just about, ten metres in height. The name dogwood comes originally from dagwood, as in dagger, for the tree's hard wood made it suitable for stabbing or skewering. For this reason, one of its many colloquial names is prickwood. But if you can cast your mind all the way back to the episode on Spindle, pretty much any tree that is hard and pointy seems to have been called prickwood or prick tree at some time or other. But hard and pointy dogwood be... An illustration of this can be found by revisiting our favourite cryogenically preserved alpine hominid, Ertzi. Ertzi now appears in this podcast so frequently, in fact, that he probably deserves residuals. Anyway, Ertzi carried a bow made of yew and arrows made of dogwood. The flowers of the dogwood tree appear in lovely clustered bunches, looking, I think, a bit like a more refined version of cow parsley umbrellas. The insect-pollinated small flowers contain both male and female reproductive parts, and each possess four delicate, creamy white petals. But it is not the flowers that make this tree such a striking plant. So, what is it that makes both competitive horticulturalist and amateur gardener alike cherish the dogwood to such an extent that they might jubilantly bark like a dogwood? It's the tree's bark. The sanguinea. In the dogwood's Latin specific name is in reference to the shrub's strikingly scarlet branches and blood-red autumn leaves. One of the tree's colloquial names is the blood twig. Even the Romans called it Virga sanguinea, the bloody rod. The foliage of the dogwood turns a cripplingly dynamic crimson in autumn, and this, if you've been taking notes, is due to the anthocyanin and carotenoid pigments that I discussed in more detail back in my episode on the field maple. Another attribute that the dogwood shares with the maple is that the dogwood's creamy white flowers form on the very end of each stem. This, in turn, forces any new buds, buds that appear as ramshackle bundles of tiny leaves rather than the tight scales of other species, to sprout a little further back down the twig. And because the leaves are arranged in opposite pairs, the twig then develops with a geometric forking, or a bifurcation, of branches. The resulting pattern is referred to as dicasial. In layman's, dogwood grows in zigzags. 
and it looks really cool. Doubly so, because these woody zigzags are the colour of blood. But if that's not clear enough an explanation of how dogwood branches form and what they ultimately look like, perhaps it would be better to reference a 14th century poet and some windscreen wipers, yes? Sure. Chaucer refers to the dogwood in The Knight's Tale by yet another name, the Whipple Tree. Now, a Whipple Tree is a device usually made from a hard wood, potentially dogwood, that helps spread the load evenly between a number of animals pulling a cart or plough. Today, you're more likely to see one or more Whipple Trees in use on your windscreen wipers. They are the bits that equalise the power from one single motor across the whole length of a long wiper blade. But if you were to replace each of Chaucer's horses with a dogwood flower, or indeed each point of where your wiper blade attaches to the main arm, then you have something that resembles a dogwood tree. Sort of. Either way, where else can you go to hear botany explained through the medium of 14th century poetry and 21st century windscreen wipers? Exactly, we have that niche nailed down. But, say you're colourblind, and no one has explained about the windscreen wiper thing... How do you recognise a dogwood by the leaves alone? Well, they've got unserrated margins and veins that gently arch forward towards the tip of the leaf. But one fun way to be certain is that if you carefully tear the leaf in half across the midrib, making sure to keep the two halves close to each other, you will see that the two halves remain connected to each other by fine elastic strings of a natural latex. There are no other native British trees that do this. Now, my favourite Elizabethan botanist, you know his name by now, knew these trees as the dogberry tree, saying the ripe blackberries had an unpleasant taste and that even the birds didn't care for them. But Gerard's getting a little carried away there. Birds and smaller mammals do eat the berries. Caterpillars, such as that of the case bearer moth, eat the leaves too. But the scent and taste of the dogwood flower and fruits is indeed not entirely pleasant. In fact, every tree from here on until the end of this podcast is what is called an asterid. Now, I don't have time to explain what exactly that is, other than to say that all asterids are characterised by containing one or more of a particular group of chemicals called iridoid glucosides. Now, it is these iridoids that have that bitter taste that Gerard loathed, and they are there in part to deter snacking herbivores. Now, some iridoids can be extremely toxic, which is why you should be very careful when exploring the many other asteroid species and indeed other members of the Cornus family. But some of these iridoids, especially those of the dogwood, have extremely useful medicinal properties. Dogwood has been used effectively, consciously and subconsciously, for thousands of years as an anti-inflammatory by humans. There are Chinese medicinal dogwood teas, and the first pioneers to America brushed their teeth with debarked dogwood sticks, which would certainly have helped if you were suffering from swollen gums after a particularly long voyage across the Atlantic. But... Contemporary scientific research is finding astounding uses of dogwood iridoids that totally eclipse mere anti-inflammatory qualities. For example, iridoids taken from the Japanese cornelian cherry, a plant from the very same genus as our dogwood, has been proven to promote neurogenesis and angiogenesis, that's the regeneration of nerve cells and vascular cells, in the brains of rats that, in the name of science, have had oxygen cut off from their brain for a full month. That's amazing, albeit barbaric. But 
These same iridoids also help with erectile dysfunction. So, uh, medicinally speaking, I guess it's fair to say that dogwood has its ups and downs. And even before scientists discovered dogwood's romantic question mark ability to rouse the sleepiest of suitors, tradition had already singled out dogwood as a tree to help men achieve their hearts' desires. The Victorian man around town would offer an umble of dogwood flowers to the woman of his dreams. If she returned his affections, she would keep the flowers. If not, it was the flowers that were returned, presumably to allow him now spurned, single, and with much spare time on his hands, to vent his frustration upon some poor, unsuspecting lab rats. And in East Prussian folklore, if a man were to rub the sap of dogwood upon his handkerchief on St John's night, that's the 23rd of June, and then inhale that iridoidal funk deep into his lungs like Dennis Hopper in Blue Velvet then he would be assured the object of his desires. But one final myth to end on, the one I have found most frequently repeated in my research for this episode. Supposedly, the cross upon which Jesus was crucified was made from the wood of the dogwood tree. The shame of having been the instrument of such suffering meant the dogwood never grew tall enough ever again for such a macabre purpose. Similarly, the dogwood sprouted its four-petal cruciform blossoms as an apology and the red twigs in memoriam for the holy blood it tragically helped spill, etc, etc. But seeing as dogwood was not present in the Middle East at the time of Jesus' execution... I find this particular myth hard to swallow. That said, those more devout than I have used this symbolic hardwood to craft crucifixes in worship of their saviour. And that is that, the bloody twig, Chaucer's whipple tree, a tree that might have crucified Christ, and a tree that might one day resurrect a rat. We're off to look at a very strange tree next week, the strawberry tree, a tree that has as much to do with strawberries as the dogwood had to do with dogs. But I look forward to seeing you all there. I hope you've enjoyed this show this week. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You know the drill. And we will see you again soon. Bye-bye for now. Uploading the secrets and stories beneath the 56-ish native trees of the bridge.